Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Hey, thanks for tuning in. This is Jeremy. With me are my good friends David Fletcher. Howdy. And Luke Galen. Hi. The topic today is going to be psychology, belief, and non-belief. We're going to delve into the issue of what does science, what does psychological research have to say about religion and religious people and religious belief. So we are proud to bring to you a new segment on the show. The segment is called, God Thinks Like You. Do you believe that God thinks like you think? Do you believe that God stand together on identical positions? Do you believe that God thinks like you think? When we believe that God thinks our thoughts, we are humanizing God. God Thinks Like You is our chance to make full use of one of our greatest resources on the podcast. Luke Galen is a professor of psychology at Grand Valley University. What do you teach? I teach a variety of courses. I teach psychology of religion, which is most relevant to that. I also teach some courses on uh, critical thinking, controversial issues in psychology, uh, human sexuality, and then some of the clinical ones like uh, counseling theories. Mm -hmm. I do uh, research on uh, religious cognition and uh, research in fundamentalism. I have a variety of social psychology projects going on with religion. I've seen some information that relates psychology to religion before, but I've always seen stuff going back to Sigmund Freud, like psychotherapeutic theories about religion being related to your parents or something. Or I've seen the complete opposite end of the soft, hard science spectrum in psychology, which would be, you know, neuroscience relating how religious experience is correlated to, I don't know, functioning in the temporal lobe or something. How is it that you go about studying religion in psychology? What is your area of focus? Well, what you mentioned first, historically, is true that many people make the association of Freud and Jung and a lot of those, William James, of course, all the early psychologists uh, 100 years ago uh, had a lot of overlap with psychology and religion, even in sociology, Durkheim. uh, There's a lot of fields. And then it dropped out in the middle of the 20th century, probably due to behaviorism, because a lot of those guys were just armchair philosophers. They didn't didn't have the uh, capability to test many things. Uh, Research wasn't that sophisticated. But it's made a comeback in the past few decades because now the same methods that you use to test any other type of psychological phenomena, so social thinking and prejudice and Uh, you can apply those same methods to psychology. So a lot of the work I do is social psychology where you can look at, you know, groups of people. You can examine what type of of, uh, religious thoughts they have, how they attribute cause and effect with situations. You can do experiments by uh, measuring their religiosity in one context and then seeing how they behave in another one. So a lot of that's uh, what what I do, social psychology. Mm -hmm. So I had the honor to actually help Luke out with one of his studies in a very small, uh, minor capacity. I got to wear a T-shirt and talk on film 
for uh, for an experiment. Actually, uh, that wasn't a study. I just wanted to see you wear the T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was something kind of gross going on. The thong was, was a weird addition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why do I have to it's wear like, this? <laughs> but you're not even on the camera. Why why aren't you wearing anything? <laughs> and these these aromatherapy candles. Uh, I don't know if I should come over to Luke's anymore. We're filming. Uh, we need a chaperone. Um, well, why don't why don't you give our listeners an example of a very specific example of the type of research that you would do to try to to try to understand some religious phenomena by sure, well, I by talk talking about the t-shirts. Or why don't we talk what? about that study that's referred okay. to variously in, in my lab as the t-shirt study? So the point of that one was that I was looking at to see if the religiosity of people, uh, the, the students that I use in the research, would affect how they view somebody when they learn that, that person is religious or not religious. So really a combination of interpersonal perception, uh, how mm. they form impressions of people. So the reason we had you wear a Jesus t-shirt in and and one condition and a Darwin t-shirt in the other condition was to control for every other aspect. If you remember, you had a script mm-hmm. where you talked, you posed as a student and we filmed you saying things about what you did with your activities. Yeah, didn't I? I just said some like normal, neutral things about myself, yeah. I believe, and then said, oh, I work for what? Habitat for Humanity yeah. or you, some over, sort of thing. Over your spring break, you volunteered for Habitat for right. Humanity. So mm. the point of all that was to get get you to be a normal guy, maybe who did something altruistic kind of in all conditions. But the only difference was in one of the conditions you had, uh, the viewer could see on your chest the Jesus emblem and in the other condition the Darwin emblem. And then I had the other conditions where you didn't wear a, a fish T-shirt, but you said that you learned about the Habitat for Humanity work in church Mm-hmm. And the other one, mm-hmm. when I asked you, you said you don't go to church. So clearly what we're varying there is simply everything else that you said was the same, but you're religious, you're not religious. And then what I had done with the subjects was I had screened out the, I use introductory psych subjects because there's the mm-hmm. easiest. They, <laughs> you they get need to credit. experiment on your students. That's awesome. Um, I had screened out ones that the earlier the part of the semester they filled out a fundamentalism questionnaire. So I took the high fundies and the low fundies. A lot of the low fundies were, in fact, non-religious people, as you might imagine, but some were religious but not fundamentalistic. Mm-hmm. They were more hippie, liberal. Uh, the gist of it was that they, they got to evaluate you and the other people in the study and on various dimensions. Could I be friends with this person? Is this a good or moral person? And what we found was, to cut to the chase, was, as you would imagine, the subjects who were high in fundamentalism uh, didn't want to socialize you when you were wearing the Darwin T-shirt. They did when you were wearing the Jesus T-shirt. And then the same as the verbal non-religious conditions. They didn't want to be your friend as much when you were not religious. They did when you were. The interesting mm-hmm. condition was actually the low fundamentalists because they, they, they made a distinction. They would rather socialize with people like them. When you were wearing the Darwin T-shirt, the low fundamentalist said, yeah, I, I like him. I would mm-hmm. well, I have a coffee with him. However, when asked whether you are a good or a moral person, they didn't distinguish in fact, in some, uh, it, it wasn't as significant. They almost agreed with the high fundamentalists. Like, yeah, the Darwin guy probably is not as moral as the Jesus guy. Huh. But they still wanted to hang out with him. Yes. They mm-hmm. were able to distinguish their uh, their liking for the person from their judgment as to whether he was a good person. Wow. So is that just uh, – this is really over, overstepping the interpretation scientifically, I admit. But is this like – is this a situation where they're hypocrites? You know, they like to party, they like to have fun and that sort of thing, but they happen to believe really conservative things? Or is this a situation where uh, they, they want to convert, they want to reach out to the lost and hang out with the sinner? 
you can like look at Jesus it, did. You can look at it from a variety of, of those perspectives. I, I gave them the opportunity to respond verbally as to why, who they liked best and why. And some of the answers were, as you would imagine, they said, uh, I like the the guy with the Jesus fish t-shirt or they, you know, they sometimes they didn't say that that's the basis of it, but they said he seems like a good person. He seems moral. The interesting thing was we had um, when you were wearing Darwin fish or when you were a overtly not religious, they didn't say, I don't like him because he's not religious. They simply liked the other person. There there was other people before and after you they liked better. Mm-hmm. What that tells you is that these people might not even be consciously aware that they're dinging somebody for being different religiously. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm mm-hmm. not able to verify this because I can't look into their unconscious, but a lot of people might simply have an unpleasant feeling without knowing, hey, I'm discriminated against this person on the basis of his or her religion. They just simply say, ah, oh, I like the other person better. Hmm. How many of them cited specifically that they wanted to hang out with him or they thought he was more moral because of the Jesus T-shirt? If they were a high fundamentalist subject and they chose, uh, they usually, ch- two-thirds of them chose Jeremy versus the other people. They usually said uh, something along the lines of, he's similar to me, and some of them actually okay. put in, he's similar religiously to me. Oh, so okay. they didn't really have any compunction about about saying mm-hmm. that, they would why they wanted to hang out with this person. But they wouldn't say outright that they didn't want to hang out with him exactly. because of the, the Darwin t-shirt. They just simply preferred somebody else for whatever reason. Hmm. And now I've heard, obviously, Paul Kurtz years ago, more recently, Daniel Dennett, are all emphasizing that we really need to look at religion scientifically, that that's an acceptable thing to do, that people should be open to, that you're, you're doing this. Uh, other people are as well. How big is this field, psychology of religion? Is it, is it a subfield of psychology or is it just a hobby or a general area of interest that a few psychologists end up steering towards or... Yeah, it's not a it's not considered a subdiscipline the same way like clinical psychology or right. social psychology mm-hmm. would be. Uh, but if you look at like a textbook from my class and other classes that are psych and religion, they cut across they take chunks out of the other various disciplines. So that's mm-hmm. reflected in my syllabus. We have a couple weeks on developmental psych. How does somebody develop uh, through their childhood into religious or non-religious thinking? Uh, take a chunk from what you mentioned before, like neuropsychology and the brain. What can we know about religious experiences by brain research or genetics, et cetera? So really, it's, it takes from, you could look within each discipline of science, not just psychology, sociology. You could look at uh, phenomena simply just using the same tools. Uh, religion becomes just another phenomena you look at. So we'll have time in future episodes to, to look at more of the interesting research. But just as a, just as a, a brief example... What is a principle that somebody might know from their introductory to psych class that has an application to studying religiosity? That's well, some of, the, some of the obvious ones would be uh, when you, if you think back to your Psych 101, they talked about the uh, people's tendency to make certain biases in their perceptions or their attributions of events. So one mm-hmm. people might be familiar with is like a self-serving attribution. If you flunk a test, you say, oh, man, that test was... Uh, biased to the professor, it was too hard. But if you mm. score well on the test, you say, I'm smart. Mm-hmm. It's something about me. So you can see why somebody would have that bias in perception because right. it makes us feel better about ourselves. And Well, if you go to the religious realm, people have biases about, for example, why they're religious. Uh, uh, there were some studies, actually, Michael Shermer uh, did the study. If, uh, if you read his book, How We Believe, he talks about this one where he asked people, why do you th- are you religious and why do you think other people are religious. And he found that there was a bias in that whereas people tended to say they themselves were religious because of rational 
internal reasons. I've thought about it. There's a design to the universe. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas when they asked whether why other people are religious, they said, oh, they need comfort. They're afraid of death. Uh, it's an emotional thing. So that's wow. interesting uh, bias there in that somebody's able to admit that there are emotional, non-rational right. reasons or so your parents raise you to be. But for other people, whereas when they're referring to themselves, their experience is that they've thought about it and they tend to discount the environmental stuff or the emotional things. Now, now, Shermer, I seem to recall he also did the reverse. Or, or didn't he ask people why they didn't believe? Yes. And what was that? Um, there were fewer people that were able to answer that because, you know, there's fewer non-believers. But, um, again, interestingly enough, you see the same bias. Somebody who's a non-believer, when asked why they don't believe, cites rational reasons. I, uh, it doesn't make sense. Uh, mm-hmm. I read the Bible. and doesn't. Make, whereas uh, when sometimes they're asked as to why other non-believers don't believe, even the non-believers have more, relatively more emotional things. That is, Jeremy's not a believer because he's an angry, he's angry at his dad. <laughs> or, you know, Dave had a bad soap experience right. and he's angry. So they even <laughs> cite emotional reasons for others who have the same non-belief as themselves. Hmm. So so I guess we should be careful when looking at psychology of religion um, as skeptics to, to immediately assume this doesn't apply to ourselves. You said there's fewer people to sample, but we know that there are, or at least there should be, a sizable amount of the population that are... Yes. Atheistic or at least explicitly non-religious, I think was the term you used earlier. What do we know about that community? What does social psychology or any of it tell us about atheists in America? Who are they? In yeah, traditionally they get neglected simply because if you look at the figures, depending on how you ask the question, you're talking as few as 3 4 5% or if you're a little generous with your just simply not I'm not a believer, you get up to maybe 10%. And uh, so if you take studies just of the general population, often they don't amount to much to, to look at. But if you specifically target them or have a large enough sample, then you can find certain things about them. We, uh, our, our survey that we're using for our uh, group is based on, um, uh, on the work of Altemeyer and Hunsberger who surveyed atheist groups. And this is a book uh, called Atheists, a Groundbreaking Study of Nonbelievers, I think was the title, where they actually surveyed a San Francisco and a uh, uh, group and the Canadian group that, where they had enough people where they could look at characteristics. So what did they find? Uh, as you would imagine, they found a lot of things that um, are the stereotypes that are actually true. Uh, uh, non-believers tend to be more well-educated. Hmm. Uh, there's uh, proportionally more males than females. We know that women are more religious than men, so the flip side applies as well. They tend to be more politically leftist, although again, not always. You have the Ayn Randians mm-hmm. uh, who are more right. libertarian. Right. So those things, some of this, those stereotypes are, are correct. However, once you start examining some of the other factors there, you see that it gets more interesting as to how they got to that their mm-hmm. non-belief status. Some of them were raised in non-religious households, so they're the you know godless offspring of godless parents. Other mm-hmm. ones are the converts, the mm-hmm. uh, or the amazing apostates, as, as Altamira <laughs> called them, people who amazing grew, apostate <laughs> who grew up in a religious household, but are made the flip and are not religious themselves. So they're your de-converts like you and you. Yeah. Mm. Wow, we're, we're superheroes. And that's awesome. Amazing, I am the apostate. amazing apostate. And those people are interesting because when you compare those people with the reverse, the converts, mm-hmm. you find that uh, converts, that, that is people who are raised relatively non-religious but convert to a religion, do so often as a result of an emotional crisis. So this is mm-hmm. your stereotypical bolt from the blue Sure. Often they had a lifestyle that included, uh, you know, negative aspects. Maybe they were abused 
alcohol. So uh, it's hard to find these these people, but often their conversion experience resolved a personal problem. William James wrote about this in his Varieties of Religious Experience, where often the converts saw they needed to make a break from a previous self, and it happens relatively quickly, a sudden, you hmm. know, Paul on the road to Damascus thing. The apostates, however, tended to be, their apostasy was more gradual. Mm-hmm. A lot of them didn't just wake up and say, I hate God and my family. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them, as you guys described in your histories, were a process of long, often arduous wrestling with doubts. Sometimes the doubts started early, uh, sometimes later, but uh, they, it was more of an intellectual process where they struggled with things and then finally realized they just couldn't maintain the lifestyle anymore. They couldn't maintain the belief. Right. That they had. So what about the stereotype of a fundamentalist atheist? You know, we hear this term applied <laughs> a lot. Is is there, you know, is there some data on that? Is there something that we, should we be acknowledging that or is that another myth or what? This was a controversial aspect of Altmeyer and Hunsberger's book because the group that he surveyed, some of them felt that his measures of their, say, dogmatism didn't do them justice. Uh, one of his findings was that the atheists were what he called, you know, relative to the agnostics, relatively dogmatic in that they said, there are, you know, I wouldn't change my belief. There are no conceivable conditions under which I would change. Mm-hmm. Some of them objected to that philosophically because they said that uh, a lot of you would have to have ample evidence to change your belief. Or they, they've already been at a place of religiousness, so for them, what new evidence could right. there be that would change their belief? Sure. Clearly, compared to the Christian fundamentalists, they are not dogmatic and fundamentalists in that sense. If you look at the measures of things like willingness to accept new evidence, just comparing atheists with religious fundamentalists, there's no comparison. They're much more flexible and open to, to experience. It's just simply relative to the people that say that they're agnostics that some of the atheists do fit a profile, I guess, of what you would call atheist, uh, dog, uh, dogmatic atheist or fundamentalist in that they say, I don't think I would ever change my mind about this mm-hmm. sort of thing. Now, you could argue as to whether that really fits the definition of fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. A lot of them would simply say, unless I see a clear you know, miracle from on high or mountains lifting or something, what evidence would there be that would lead to God's, uh, the evidence of God's existence? How do we improve that study? Um, well, I, I seem to remember it was only of people, what, in California and a group in, in uh He had several Canada groups. Too. He had about uh, the Bay Area atheists from California and the uh, San Francisco area. He also had a smaller group of in the American South. I think it was uh, Alabama and then some in Idaho. There are some atheist groups there. And then he had his uh, – he's in, in uh, Altamires in Canada, so he had some Winnipeg, I think uh, – Manitoba, University of Manitoba, parents of students. Uh, Canadians are a little bit more irreligious than Americans, so he mm-hmm. had a few yeah. more of them. So he noticed regional differences too. Yes. So. W- when was this study done? Um, the, he has, uh, I think the main studies were done several years. The book just came out last year, so oh, that's okay. relatively recent. So it's fairly recent, but it's a, a relatively small sample size? Yes. Yeah, and that's one thing that w- that we're trying to remedy here at uh, CFI Michigan is uh, I'm working with our, our president and board to have a – we just completed one wave of a survey of our group mm-hmm. so that we can get people on our mailing list and have a more sizable sample of people that are uh, – attend CFI-type events that are n- mostly non-religious. So I got to be a fly on the wall in the Death Star control room <laughs> of, the, of the Empire when you were meeting – to do this project, and uh, it's more than just CFI Michigan that we're surveying. You're actually you're actually planning a study that's going to be pretty groundbreaking. 
in this regard, hopefully. Hopefully. We, we, uh, we're going to look at the results of just our group first. We've had about um, uh, three or 400 people uh, do our online survey. We're going to look at the results this year and, and then in 2008 and then, and then maybe retool and decide if we want to do something different and talk with CFI about expanding it to their, right. to their membership, their mailing list. And this is a survey to atheists or... It's to everybody who is on our mailing list. So we do have some people that are religious, spiritual. Mm-hmm. You know, we have some of the some the people. deists. Maybe. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of them. One one of the interesting items allowed them to uh, pick any term that applied to them. So it could be atheist, could be humanist. So there's a lot of spread. But then the uh, and the following item said pick one term that best applies to you. And then you saw a shift to atheist. Uh, for a lot of people, there were about maybe two-thirds that, that hmm. said that. So a lot of people <coughs> that said, I am a humanist, when given a chance to have a lot of descriptors, when the brass tacks came down, they said, I'm an atheist. Wow. I had to pick one term. That, that's um, pretty surprising to me. What exactly are you hoping to find from this study? I mean, not a conclusion, but what, what are you hoping to measure exactly? Mm-hmm. Well, we have a... Uh, uh, I would like to look at what I mentioned before. Some of the differences in, in the members of the groups are there clusters or types of people that attend groups like CFI Michigan, clusters of non-religious people. Because now that we have more numbers, we can actually look at that and see are there differences between the apostates and the always non-religious. Um, hmm. Are there differences in terms of what they want from the group? Some people are they going for political discussions uh, because of leftist you know views or libertarian views versus people who want the religion. Type stuff? Are they just simply people who are interested in science? What are the divisions amongst people uh, uh, that, if you can characterize them all under the banner of free thinkers or you know CFI members, what does that tell you about them? Uh, the the differences between them. And so far, we just don't have this data available anywhere. I mean, nobody's tried to do this before on this large of a scale. Uh, there's not a lot of studies again because of just the numbers. A lot of people haven't specifically until Altemeyer and Hunsberger's book, there haven't been a lot of people that specifically targeted and looked at subtypes of people who are united under simply they don't believe in God. Mm-hmm. What are the subtypes amongst that? There's a lot of work on subtypes of Christians. They do that themselves. You know, you can look at denominations. Right. You could look at path- conversion versus non-conversion. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of work on the uh, uh, non-religious side of the same types of questions, though. Hmm. Um, well, I, you know, I think it's great that you're doing this, um, and it's great to have you as a as a resource and everything, uh, and a friend if you still accept me. Um, we'll see. But from hanging out in groups like this and then going to national conferences and and stuff, m- maybe this is the wrong impression. But I think religious people, for the most part, think they have us figured out, but atheists themselves don't. I think. They, um, Our skepticism is self-reflective. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've noticed that we get together and we will talk about funny things. You can meet an atheist across the country. We were talking to DJ Grothy about this last week. And you can find that there's similar life experiences, similar attitudes and, and interests. And and every once in a while when, when you get people together talking about these things and they all feel comfortable with one another and – you say, that's really odd. You know, I wonder if this is typical of most atheist experience, a- atheists or non-believers. And being a, a scientific bunch, we all then preface our sayings by saying, this is only anecdotal evidence, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I find it striking that, you know, a lot of religious people, they can turn to their the, the history of their denomination. They can 
they can look at their their particular heritage and 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 trace the ideas and and uh, and they can look to science if they want to know some of the the attitudes and and the numbers in their group and stuff. But atheists, for the most part, we know our history, we know our philosophy, but we don't really know much about ourselves as people when we get together in groups and what we're. It's, if you look at any, I think DJ compared a lot of the, some of the things to the gay movement in that, uh, you know, there's schisms within the gay movement from the 70s, you know, 60s and 70s. Should they appeal to the mainstream? Should they or should they just mm. let the freak flag f- fly and have, <laughs> you know, sequin bikinis in the marches and things like that? Right. You know, what should Homosexuals, ab- not atheists. Or both. Yeah, e- whatever. Either or. But uh, I think the same debates we always hear in the, in the skeptic and free thinking movements is like the labeling issue. I th- I'm sure DJ's tired of hearing mm. what should we call ourselves. And, oh, you know, yeah. one of the stereotypes that I, I also want to look at is: are is it really accurate that that non-religious people are like herding cats? That they're so prickly uh, that they're impossible to organize within a group. You know, I right. think some groups like CFI or our local group which you know, used to be the Free Thought Association, have done really well at keeping people under the big tent whose tendency is to schism. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it's very frustrating for people uh, that work with us to get everyone like the American atheist might accuse right. the humanist of being wishy-washy mm-hmm. and vice versa. It's in every group schisms. It's part of our psychology of social organizations. Now, so, and, and this is just anecdotal evidence, but as someone who was recently in New York with a group of, of young atheists getting a group of young atheists on the subway all at once and getting to the right stop is, in fact, like herding cats. Um, <laughs> but but we eventually all found our way there. We just take different paths, um, which is, I think, true of our people. Uh, depending on what the data returns, do you foresee something like a secular humanist free thinker version of Barna where we start seeing – in groups that did this and this and this and this, um, they were able to herd the cats. <laughs> uh, yeah, what, uh, what is it that distinguishes right. successful cat herders yeah. from other ones? Yeah, I think that would be a, a research organization or something that's applied to a, a goal of organization and mm-hmm. maybe even some discipline. Uh, common understanding, I think, would be ideal. We need to know, you know, uh, what is it about uh, what is it about free thinking types, people, and humanists that makes them so. Uh, in some ways, d- difficult. In some ways, it's not hard to to understand. How else could you have achieved it? By definition, you're a minority, mm-hmm. a- and that many of these people achieve that minority status by independently striking out on their own, often through intellectual effort, uh, to maybe even at great personal cost, with friends and family, to achieve a position of that they feel is intellectually honest. Mm-hmm. How could you not expect that person to be somewhat reluctant to fold in with a group and walk right. along like lanes? Right. Maybe at the same time, we could measure groupthink too, potentially. Like, it, would there be a way to see how much people do conform to viewpoints being in a group? Right. Unlike many other minority groups, we're not born with this. Um, it's not, uh, I mean, the gay community is, I hate to break this to you, fundamentalist, it's not a choice. Um, race is not a choice. So we we are coming at this from a, a position of choosing to be in this minority, which makes it a very different group dynamic, I think. Than Although, Dave, some of the interesting stuff yeah. that comes out of our genetics work is that there are certain mm. aspects of, of certainly not your the, the religious content, but there are certain aspects of personality that are associated with 
free thinking, non-religious things that might be partially genetic. Oh, so sure. there's some people have looked at things like uh, not traditionalism, conventionalism mm-hmm. is somewhat. Uh, some of the research show that's somewhat heritable. The people who kind of just go with the flow, don't like a lot of change in their lives, not particularly interested in intellectual stimulation, that's partially genetic. If you think of religion as irreligion as being the flip side of that, being mm-hmm. avant-garde, interested in new things, that the term xenophilia, preference for differences and change, huh. that actually in some ways might be partially genetic. Uh, that the, uh, Certainly not all of that could of non-belief would be, right. but it's inter- those are some of the things that we need to look at. Are some people have the reverse God gene. I'm, hmm. Dean Hamer had a book called The God Gene, right. which was somewhat, the t- title was a little overselling there, but there might be. <laughs> I think one of the, was it Dawkins? One of the persons said, I think there is a gene for belief, but I regret I don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> so so that means that it's not my fault that I'm going to hell. <laughs> it's God's fault because he made he me a, a, you a, a unbeliever. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Well, that, it's, it seems like there's a lot of different areas that you could take this in once we start understanding who the non-believers are and uh, so it's exciting stuff. I think one thing that that, that does give me optimism despite the herding cat uh, aspect is that when you don't have a divine mandate, uh, you know, that could be seen as a negative, you know, Christians are good at organizing because there's fear of, you know, there's fear of not only ecclesiastical authority but also fear of hell and damnation if you don't get with the program. We don't have that benefit of having a uh, a uh, leviathan to mm-hmm. enforce laws. However, that actually could be our advantage in that uh, – and the, the Dalai Lama kind of typifies this. We, we talked about him in the show before where he's open to scientific information. The they've Dalai asked, Lama? Yeah, they've yeah. asked him before, and what if scientific evidence invalidates this or this uh, that aspect of your Buddhism? And he says, I would have to go with the evidence. That is a benefit, I think, of – the non-group think of non-religious people in that, let's say these surveys find something right. that's maybe somewhat not flattering. Uh, maybe people who are not religious well, tend take, to Well, uh, take charity, right? There yeah. is some data, right, about how much atheists give to charity? Yes. The, uh, Arthur Brooks had a book, Why, uh, Who Who Cares More, or something like that, where he found that actually religious conservatives give more to charity uh, than uh, non-religious people. Actually, they gave even more. When there was non-religious conservatives gave the least. But there's some benefits of planned charitable giving uh, for religious people. Now, we can look at that and say, yes, that doesn't throw us into the best light. But let's talk about why that is. Is it because right. of social? we're not enfolded within a social institution that has a lot of gold-billed houses for you know, the secular people of America. Right. We're working to get our organizations off the ground to begin with. Uh, Is it because we're not starting joiners? foundations? And yeah, there might be some uh, negative aspects of not being joiners that we need to think about. But the, when the research evidence shows that that's the case, then we can not deny that. We can then say, what do we need to do to address that? Right. 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 And with the charity issue, for me personally, it's always a struggle. Well, A, because I'm poor, but also um, to give to charity because I want to make sure it's a charity that – um, is not religious mm-hmm. it, or not overtly religious. Um, and I think that holds back some of us from, from donating a lot because there aren't a lot of charities that advertise themselves as, as wholly secular. There's um, Habitat for Humanity, which is um, even uh, tied to to um, some Christian sect or another. A- and it's tricky. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that may be one of the contributing factors to, to yeah. why we don't give more to charity. If you look at uh, America is really set up, and, and I'm sure that the conservatives have tried to push more and more charity to private rather than governmental functions. However, if you look at things like uh, Europe, governmental spending uh, as a whole, like the high tax rate they pay in the Netherlands and Denmark, you know, they, per capita they pay a lot more 
for relief for poor mm-hmm. countries and mm-hmm. things like that than the United States does. It's simply not charity, though, because everyone assumes that's right. a government function. I'm paying a 50% some crazy tax bracket, but uh, I don't have to give charitably individually because that's a government function. To, so it's a, often a philosophical mm. difference between conservatives and liberals as right. to what should the basis be. In America, we tend to, tend to think of individual charity. You put your money in the little pot. Right. And if you're saying that eighth, you know, non-believers tend towards more leftist politically, you, you could say that, well, okay, maybe they're not giving to charity, but uh, but uh, they are focusing on trying to address the issues at a broader level to try to remedy those same things, yeah. maybe the more than a conservative. Research actually finds a lot of interesting disjunctions between the planned charitable giving, which, as we just said, uh, religious people are good at planned helping be types of behaviors. However, if you look at spontaneous helping, where you somebody you're not expecting, you meet the Samaritan on the side of the road or whatever, the good Samaritan, the, the victim where you weren't planning on it, actually non-religious people or people that are more uh, less traditionally religious are more spontaneously helpful. Religious people are more non-spontaneously helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I would love to take a page or two from the from the Gospel of Matthew, you know, where Jesus is being um, challenged by the Pharisees and everything else as to whether or not he follows the law. And uh, Jesus insists to all his followers that uh, you should, you know, you should follow the law better than the Pharisees. I'm not suggesting atheists at all should be as more religious than the religious people, but wouldn't it be great if we did some self-reflection and organization and used data, something we respect uh, and can be persuaded by, to have both work for a political remedy to to some of the social ills out there, but also get these organizations to attract more members uh, and, and know how to do it and start having charities and start really actually being humanists and not just peddling, uh, uh, not just trying to advance some particular epistemology. That way when people will look at the side of the road for the Adopt-A-Highway, they'll see you're on the heathen highway now. Oh. We'll police our own and keep it free of trash. <laughs> Would that be the highway to hell? <laughs> yes. That the next, yeah. Oh, all right. Well, thank you very much, Luke, for that. And I, I'm really excited to hear more segments in the future of God Thinks Like You, Psychology of Religion. We're going to move now to a listener email from one of our religious listeners. It's anonymous. It says, Hi, guys. One of the critical thinking, courageous, faithful here. I came across your podcast today while browsing for sermons, and it intrigued me. How does that happen exactly? <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. That's, that's fascinating. But huh. <laughs> I'm glad it did. Uh, He said, I listened to a podcast, and while it's clear you all aren't a bunch of hacks, I was surprised that a faulty argument manifested itself so quickly. The discussion in question covered the issue of Christians being disingenuous as they preach hell, saying, hey, I don't make the rules, but when you die, you're going to burn in all sorts of nasty ways, such as dot, dot, dot which uh, he's actually referring to the very segment that's in our sample clip uh, that, that you can listen to and right I believe, off the website. I believe that's my faulty argument, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, no, I, I listened to it again, and it was, it was all of us. In oh, fact, good. Oh. Uh, he's loosely paraphrasing something Luke said. Oh. 
about the ice melting. Yeah, about the ice melting. And then you, right. yeah, you said the Indiana Jones comment, which comes next. He says, I think the observation... I think the observation would be troubling indeed if it truly is the Bible that describes this eternal torment, in, in parentheses, like, as you pointed out, the Nazis melting in Raiders of the Lost Ark. But that imagery doesn't come from the Bible. The book itself has little to say about hell, or heaven for that matter, and you can thank Dante and the church leaders from the Dark Ages for the hellish inventions we think of today. I believe the place exists, he says, but likely not in the way many Christians over the centuries have described it, as efforts to scare people into submission, no doubt, he writes. That being said, you seem like a clever group of guys, and I respect your message to believers. Uh, referring to a statement we have on the blog, doubtcast.org, check it out. A welcome message to our religious believers. And he says, I do hope to visit the site when I can because I enjoy critical thinking as much as the next guy or gal. So thanks. So uh, first of all, our challenger, um, uh, I liked the fact that he, he presented things in a very respectful way. Yeah. Uh, that's mm -hmm. that's uh, what we're and going specific. for. Yeah. Yes, and specific. That's the perfect kind of criticism. Really. Yes, he addressed a specific problem and supported his arguments with evidence. And his argument seems to be, in brief form, that the graphic images of hell are an invention not of true early Christianity, but of later church leaders and Dante. All right, I'm going to say where I actually agree with him first. I agree with what he's saying as far as the Bible barely talks about hell. I agree with him perhaps for a different reason in that, yes, hell is a concept in the Bible that evolves. There's very little mention of a hell as a place of fiery torment in the Hebrew Bible. None in those specific terms that I'm aware of or at least come to the top of my head. And even in, in, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, really in the whole Bible altogether, all conceptions of an afterlife seem to be evolving. They are changing. They're written by different authors with different perspectives. Different nuances and traditions are presented into it. And so, yes, there is no unified concept of hell in the Bible. And so for this particular reason, I can see where he's coming from. However, that's not the entire story because there are verses that do describe the torments of hell and make it very clear that it's not a pretty place. The statements that Luke and I and Dave made about hell can be entirely supported from biblical verses, even if they do not go into exhaustive detail. So I just wanted to share a couple uh, here, and Is we're going to have... There, Jeremy? Are those Bible verses? I got Bible verses oh, right man. here, whipping out the scriptures. This will be on our website as well, all of these verses. Go check out our, our podcast blog at doubtcast.org, and you can get a nice little list yourself. But here's just a few quick examples from Revelation chapter 20, verses 9 through 15. I'll just read a small portion of that. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so thrown into a lake of fire, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That seems pretty straightforward. Uh, mm -hmm. But this is not just the devil 
and his angels. If you jump down several verses, uh, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire too. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into that same lake. So human beings will also endure that torment as well. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Jesus himself attests to how bad hell is, even if he doesn't specifically describe it. He says, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, in Matthew 18, 8. Uh, it is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands and two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. Again, fire is being mentioned as part of the torture. He also now, alludes metaphorically to the fires of Gehenna, like the bushes that will be thrown onto the fire. So that's not a direct reference to hell, but I think many people metaphorically associate that people that are bad will be thrown onto the fire just like bushes are going to be burned. And right. And if trees. there was any question from that, that this is a metaphor, uh, another gospel account, Luke 16, where we get a little picture of hell from the biblical perspective. I'll read the passage real quick. There was a rich man who is dressed in purple and fine linen who feasts sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with that from what fell from the rich man's table. Uh, even the dogs would come and lick his sores. So, you know, oh, that's, that's pretty rough. Wow. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away uh, with Lazarus by his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Now, the key to get here is that apparently dipping finger in water uh, to cool his tongue is what he wants as an act of mercy because he's in agony in these flames. Okay, It's not describing just some abstract spiritual condition here. Very key to this is absolute torment to where water on your tongue would be refreshing. I think some translations even give a time span as to how many years of refreshment it would give. That might be a King James thing. Now, it should be noted that much of the popular uh, image of hell does come from Dante. Yes, that's true. But uh, Dante actually doesn't describe hell as a fiery place. Um, in fact, there are more people encased in ice than, than there is flames. There's, I mean, there's all sorts of different um, devices of torment. But really, the fiery hell imagery, as, as we've just heard comes from the Bible and, and not from Dante. Yes. If we need to concede to this guy at all, it's that nowhere in the Bible does it literally say word for word, and thus their eyes shall melt in their heads as as right. was depicted in the Hollywood film Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> and he's right that the most graphic imagery and stuff, yes, is is more around the time of Dante. But, mm -hmm. but what he may not know is that Dante didn't just make this up. He says, he says in his email... Dante emailed you us? Can, no. Oh. 
Our challenger says in his email, you can thank Dante and the church leaders from the Dark Ages for the hellish inventions we think of today. And then he says, efforts to scare people into submission, no doubt. Giving you the impression that that this is a, a later invention used to scare people into belief. And what I don't think he realizes is that Dante borrows from other traditions, Mm -hmm. traditions that go all the way back to the time of the biblical writers. And one in particular that Dante did borrow from uh, is the Apocalypse of Peter. Uh, The Apocalypse of Peter is not canonical now, so I guess a strict literalist will disregard this. However, it was in many early Christian canons before we got the one that eventually uh, became the main New Testament canon. It's contemporary to the book of Revelation. It's written around the year 135 CE. And we know that this encouraged, uh, that this influenced a lot of early Christian thinking on the subject. It's quoted by the church fathers, such as Theophilus of Antioch, Clement of Alexandria, and several others. And it has all these ghoulish visions of hell that he speaks of. I had some verses here from that, uh, which I will post to the website. But I'll just give you Bart Ehrman's brief summary of what you can find in the Apocalypse of Peter. Um, This from his book on the New Testament called The New Testament. Those guilty of blasphemy are hanged by their tongues over unquenchable fire to roast eternally. Men who have committed fornication are forever suspended by their genitals. Those who have committed murder are thrown into a gorge to be perpetually tormented by venomous reptiles and swarming worms. Worshippers of idols are chased by hideous demons and driven off high cliffs time and time again for all of eternity. Cliff diving never sounded so fun. <laughs> so this this is not just some later invention, some perversion. This is part of early Christian thought. This influenced the early church fathers. This went down in the traditions. It's not something that was simply invented later to scare people. I think what our point was when we made the eyes melting the socket comments is that the, the context was we were talking about how Christians like to detail the ways in which people like us will be will be punished. And even Some though the, the Bible might not literally say that, I think that the, the important point to make psychologically is that when you think that that's going to happen with someone, mm-hmm. that has psychological implications of how you treat them now. Right. So it doesn't need the Bible doesn't need to say their eyes are going to melt in the socket. The point is those people think that's going to happen to us. Do you think that those people are going to then treat us uh, equally there? Right. Our worldview doesn't have any punishments. People do bad things, and it's too bad, but they don't get eternally tormented for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And that was the point that we are trying to make is that right. we don't detail the ways in which Christians should suffer. And also that saying, I believe another point that we made originally was that uh, that is an offensive thing to say to people. Thinking that is is far more offensive about somebody than saying that they're irrational or something like Think that. Think of all the, the concepts that Catholics have had to generate over the years to, to explain why your baby is not going to suffer. They've developed mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. forms of limbo for infants, limbo for patriarchs. None of that's in the Bible. But the point is people right. generate that because the implications of the religion are so horrifying. My baby wasn't baptized and it's in hell. How many... You know, tears have been shed by parents who were led to believe that their children, for whatever reason, are going to go to a fiery place and be tormented because of doctrines like that. Right. And uh, and so much of this dogma has been accumulating over 2,000 years. It may not all be 
directly from the Bible, but that doesn't mean that people don't believe right, it. Right, right. So I, I think there's something of merit to what our challenger, what I believe was the rationale behind what he was getting at. I, I think he wants to he wants to distinguish between the original context in which these were written and remove the historical baggage from it. And I admire that. I think that's good, and you need to do that to be a good critical thinker. And relating directly to what Luke was saying about a lot of the suffering these doctrines have caused people over the years— is that with thoughtful, considerate, moral Christians nowadays, they want to vindicate their texts. They want to vindicate their religious tradition of some of this more graphic imagery by dispelling stuff like this. And I think that might have been the motivation of this challenger's email. But what I'd like to point out is that the way this is done, and reading several websites that tried to basically dismiss the notion of hell as ever being part of something that Jesus said or contained in the Bible. This is done with no intellectual integrity. The The end result they're looking for is a good thing. They want to soften the judgmental sides of their religion. But you don't do that by just doing selective evidence on the other side. Okay, If the fundamentalists are going to harp on hell all the time, and not talk about some of the things that more liberal Christians want to say is that, no, we should be motivated by compassion, love for God, wanting to do what's right. It's equally selective with the evidence to just dismiss then passages that doesn't fit in with your worldview. If fundamentalists are bringing in their own historical baggage from Dante and other things like that when reading these texts, well, then a lot of liberal, more liberal Christians are bringing in their historical baggage from right now, today, and trying to force 21st century moral ideas on a document from the 1st and 2nd century. So we're just calling for a little intellectual integrity here. We have another new segment to share with you. When researching for this podcast, we come across headlines every once in a while uh, that sound like satire and that our little red flags, skeptical red flags go up because we we don't want to be duped into portraying these uh, these stories as being actually accurate and be taken in by by jokers in our own movement. But sometimes with these stories, when you dig a little deeper, you find out that they're actually true and they sadly are not satire at all. So we decided from time to time on the show, we're going to share these stories with you as part of our Stranger Than Fiction segment. We have an article from the Daily Mail out in the UK. Pope's exorcist squads will wage war on Satan. Yes, you heard me right. Exorcist squads. Uh, This article... um, Posted on December 29th, 2007, Satanism on the rise. Pope Benedict has unveiled plans to set up specialist exorcism squads. The Pope has ordered his bishops to set up exorcism squads to tackle the rise of Satanism. Vatican chiefs are concerned at what they see as an increased interest in the occult. They have introduced courses for priests to combat what they call the most extreme form of godlessness. Now, the... Vatican's, and I'm quoting here, exorcist-in-chief, Father Gabriel Amorth, Amorth maybe, 
Father Gabriel says, Thanks be to God, we have a pope who has decided to fight the devil head on. And they're setting up all of these training camps to get priests equipped with um, uh, whatever tools they need to perform oh exorcisms. I, I thought they had a special cloning facility where they took their top exorcist and, and uh, um, took free will out of him and reproduced him in mass numbers so that they could attack the... No, actually, they need an old priest and a young priest. No, actually, that's not true. As it turns out, any priest should be able to perform an exorcism, but many of them are not properly trained. So that's why they're setting up these exorcism squads to combat people reading uh, Daniel Dennett books and whatnot. I have a video on that. Uh, I think one of the channels, like Learning Channel, had a thing, Deliver Us from Evil, where they they portrayed the various types of exorcism in a Roman Catholic. They had a Greek Orthodox exorcist. They had a Pentecostal. It's very big now in the Pentecostal movement, so maybe there's some political mm. competition thing with the Pope. But uh, it's because, you know, like Latin, the growth in Latin America and Africa of Pentecostalism, uh, there's a competition between them and the yeah. Catholic Church for converts. Apparently Catholicism wasn't exciting enough and people liked the jumping around and the spirits. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have a, a friend who um, comes from a Pentecostal family, and when his mother was pregnant with him, his grandmother had a dream in which um, her daughter's um, spawn was a demon. So she tried to exercise the mother then and has throughout his life um, exercised my friend three or four times now. Well, she's doing something wrong. Well, that's what you actually yeah, you find apparently. in this is that uh, uh, when you when you look at some, there's some primitive surveys of these people, and they've they're multiply exorcised, which is probably what you would expect given the level of mental illness that's present <laughs> in these people. <laughs> that many of these people no have 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 serious mental illness problems ranging from panic to anxiety. Mm-hmm. Some of them are you know maybe dissociative, multiple personalities, schizophrenic types, and they're going to these exorcists, and of course. You know, there's maybe some relief in the immediate catharsis. Imagine how right, positive it would be to have a group of people oh, sure. expel your demons. You're fine. Hey, see you later. But then the mental illness crop, crops up again, and they're back the next week. I've always wondered if, uh, obviously, it's quite a different phenomenon, but uh, any of our listeners who were once churchgoers themselves or, or have a lot of friends that are, you may hear about this thing, rededicating your life to Christ. This is big with the, with the born-again believers, right? You get saved— this is the moment when you accept Jesus and he comes in and, and saves your life. And now you're no longer a sinner and you're free and you're liberated and you're in the power of Jesus. Um, of course, when you turn out to be absolutely no different you in the intervals. Yeah, yeah. You need to, you know, but you can't get saved again, right? What kind of savior needs to be readministered, you know, every couple of months like a birth control shot? Um, Apparently, salvation is weaker than polio uh, <laughs> or the polio vaccine. Uh, but so, so you can go down to the altar call again and get that spiritual high all over again by your rededication to Christ. Well, think about how boosting that is uh, ego-wise to go through this experience. You have social support. Everybody rallies around you. The attention's right. on you. So who wouldn't uh, have somewhat, it's, uh, be kind of somewhat addicted to those types of experiences. Right, right. Get rid of your guilt, too. Right. It's also a, a dissonance reduction. If you're not sure about yourself, what could be more of a definitive sink-or-swim experience than going through a laying on of hands or something like that? If you have any type of seeds of doubt, if you go through one of these things, there's no more doubt. Right, you're, yeah. you're committed. And so there's no, you know, it, it's a commitment-enhancing experience. All I know is that I can't... Um, help but hear the Ghostbusters theme song when I read this story about the Pope and his exorcism squads. 
Do they have like Batmobile? Don't things? cross uh, the line. You shouldn't have said that because I think they have royalties for that song, so I can't stick it in now. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode. Please don't forget to email us your comments, questions, challenges, etc. Till next time. Episodes, links, or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Josh Dunnigan helped with recording. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission. Mm-hmm.